the Buddha talked about five particular mind states that are very common, very natural, when you sit down and begin to look at your own mind. So five mind states that are very likely with you or have been with you these uh, last couple of days. And I want to talk about these five, but also so as a way to really point out your experience, so maybe you could identify some aspect of, of your experience, but also to talk about them in a more broad way so that you may have some perspective or be reminded of a perspective to relate to the experiences that are arising, particularly the difficult experiences. However, the same teaching applies for whatever experience is arising at any given moment, and that is the ability to be able to open to and to embrace, to really accept, I suppose, your experience just as it is. Because usually the tendency of mind is to either resist what's arising, to want to push it away, or particularly if we don't like it, or if we like our experience, then we want to hold on to it. We grasp onto it, or we get attached to it. And that's the, the movement of mind that we find ourselves swinging in back and forth, back and forth, of holding on or pushing away, holding on and pushing away. And the more that we can actually identify that particular experience, that movement of mind, that pattern of mind, the more we'll actually be able to understand ourselves and be able to be released or freed from that movement. And when that movement starts to end, what it ends into is stillness. We drop into stillness because the mind is no longer move me, moving in that attachment and that aversion. And so it's really quite a significant part of the teaching to really understand the full experience of those of the movement of attachment and aversion. And so when I talk about these, what are called the five difficult mind states, we can even get involved with attaching and being aversive to these five states. And so as I talk about them, I want to keep that in mind so that we can really begin to understand how to work with these states. Because ultimately, what we are attempting to do is to understand how to come into a place of stillness, how to come into a place of ease. And once we understand, more and more we actually begin to drop into that experience itself. Some of you have probably already noticed that from the day that you arrived till now, many people all, all also reported this, that you are starting to feel more calm, that there is a certain uh, shifting of that anxiety or the agitation 
um, the restlessness that you were feeling or even the tiredness or whatever you were feeling when you first came in, that there is a little bit more sense of ease and a little more presence and a little more clarity and connection. For a lot of people, at least there's more of that. It may not be the predominant experience, but there's more of that beginning to show up. And that, and that arises because we're starting to fall more into a place of allowing our experience to be the way it is. We're not so much in conflict with our experience or trying to manipulate or fix our experience, which is what we're so often involved in, in our way of being. So these five difficult states of mind that the Buddha talks about again and again, they're called, uh, classically, they're called the hindrances. And they're called the hindrances because they potentially, when they're not understood, can hinder deep clarity, can hinder the connection with the deepest part of ourselves, with, the, with our deep nature. They can actually become obstacles if we don't understand them. In themselves, they're not, but it's the way that we relate to them that can become obstacles or hindrances. In Pali, the, the language the, that the teachings came to, the hindrances are translated, the, the Pali word, which I don't know offhand, but that's translated as covered over. That when the hindrances are uh, alive, there's a way they can cover over something which is available to us all the time, but we don't know how to gain access to. So these five mind states, many of you know what they are. The first one is desire or sense desire. The second one is aversion. The third one is sloth and torpor. Love those words. Even when you say them, you just get the whole sense of what that mind state is. Sloth and torpor. The fourth one, restlessness, the opposite of the sloth, restless energy. And the last one is doubt. And these are the five states of mind that the Buddha calls attention to and says, these are the ones we really have to pay attention to. And they are the experience that arise for us, the experiences that arise for us when we first sit down and look at our own mind. So we want to understand a little bit more about each one of these. There's a simile called the clear pond simile, which I really like to share when I talk about the hindrances because I think that it really uh, points to um, a particular kind of experience that each one of these give, but they also show the potential for the hindrance capacity. So if you think of the pure mind, the unhindered mind, the mind that is vast and aware if you imagine the pure mind like a clear pool where you can see down into the depths of the pool, when sense desire, sense desire, desire for the sense of the eyes and the ears and the taste and the touch, all those pleasurable experiences, when those arise and the desire for those arise, it's as if we pour beautiful dyes into the clear pond. And then we get entranced by the colors, we get seduced by the colors, 
And then that prevents us from seeing into the depths of the pool. We lose our, our focus, and something else becomes more important. The opposite energy, which is the aversion, is, is as if the pool began to be a hot pool and some hot spring was coming from the bottom of the pool and the pool started to boil and bubble and became very turbulent and disturbing. This would be like the mind state of aversion. It's very hot and disturbing. And when it arises, we're not able to see down into the clear depths of the pool. The surface and the, well, just below the surface is just too disturbed. When I travel in New Zealand, I go there quite often. I'm always reminded when I walk around the volcanoes, the volcanic areas, and there's these hot mud pools, and the mud is just blowing and spurting and spitting and from the heat of the earth. And I always think, yep, that's just like the aversion. When my mind gets really angry and aversive, it's just like that spitting hot mud <laughs> boiling pool. The sloth and torpor is as if there were thick layers of weeds and algae on the pond's surface. And they're just too thick to see down to the bottom of the pool. We're just, we're just kind of swimming in that algae, and we just we even forget that there's a depth to the pool. You know, it's the, we feel so thick with the algae. The restlessness, again, the opposite energy, is like if there was a strong wind blowing on the surface of the, of the pond. And because of that disturbance on the surface, again, we can't see down to the bottom of the pool. The last one, doubt. When doubt arises, it's as if there, um, somebody took a big stick and stirred up the mud from the bottom of the pool. And the whole pool became, became very muddy. And it's just thick with mud. And you just couldn't see, you can't see anything but the mud. And that's what, that's what when doubt arises, the mind can feel very muddy, very thick, very um, unclear. You can't see the depths. And the depths, again, being the uh, touching into the, the nature, the true nature that is clear, that is bright, that is luminous, that is unbothered, it's unfettered, it's boundless like the, like the clear sky. That's our nature. And so when these difficult mind states arise and we get identified with them and we think for some reason they shouldn't be there, they can act like a hindrance to this clarity, to this, to this depth. So I want to say a little bit about each one and then talk about the way to work with them in a broader way. The first one, desire, being enchanted by sense desire. The Pali word is tanha, tanha. And this is really translated as thirst, when we thirst, like when there's a drought and we become very thirsty and we, we, are, we are feeling that drive for getting that, that thirst fulfilled. And so when we get caught in that kind of sense desire, that wanting, it's also called the wanting mind, when we want something to be happening 
that isn't happening, or we want something that we think is going to really give us the happiness and the satisfaction that we're looking for, that kind of entrancement, we get so entranced or seduced by that thing that we think is going to bring us the happiness. This is the tanha that is being talked about in this first hindrance, where we really get blinded by thinking that thing or that situation is going to do it for us, that that is going to be what gives us the fulfillment. Other kinds of translations for this word is like a, a drivenness. And when you hear the words, kind of sense what that mind state is like, because each one of us knows this very well. And you may even recall over the last few days when this particular mind state has arisen. Or it may even be a predominant mind state that you know very well that you kind of live with, this kind of um, ambition. Another way of talking about it is an ambition, uh, a drive to get something or want something. It's also called compulsion or addiction. It's really the fever. It's also like a fever of unsatisfied desire. And we just, so it's not, it's not just a light kind of, oh, I want some chocolate ice cream. You know, we're not talking about that kind of desire. But it's a really, it's a kind of experience that we feel like we're kind of taken over. And we're not able to really be with ourselves in a very clear way. We feel pulled almost like we're toppling over to get that thing that we think is going to bring us the happiness, that's going to bring us the satisfaction. The thought is, if I can only have that, I'll be happy. And it could even be, if only I could not feel this pain in my knee or this pain in my neck, then I'd be happy. Then I'd really be able to do this meditation practice. And then we can feel this kind of strong desire to have a different kind of experience than we're having. And we get taken over by the desire itself. And we, we forget that we're all, we're, there's act, we can have access to something that, where we can already feel a wholeness or a sense of fulfillment within ourselves by connecting to something deeper within ourselves. The, cl the classical story that we often hear is the story of Nasruddin and the chili peppers. And the story goes, his old um, uh, Sufi master, I think, Nasruddin, where Nasruddin is sitting and eating chili peppers, one after the next, and he's starting to sweat and breaking out in sweat, and, but he just keeps eating the chili peppers and, and it's starting to feel really painful and really burning, and, but he's eating the chili peppers and somebody walks over and says, Nasruddin, what are you doing? Why do you keep eating these chili peppers when it's, it's so painful for you? Clearly this is not a pleasant experience. And, and Nasruddin says, I'm waiting for the sweet one. And in a way, that's what we don't see, that we just kind of keep putting these things that we think are going to bring us some kind of pleasure eventually, but we don't really feel or, or, or pay attention to the pain that we may be experiencing in the moment while we're waiting for this pleasurable experience to arise. This uh, email was sent to me by a friend 
around uh, Christmas time, and I just really think it's so poignant in pointing out how these things that we think are going to make such a difference don't actually do it for us. It's from a friend in Canada who says, so the latest from my eight-year-old grandson, Seth, after all the build-up and the anticipation, the opening of stockings and gifts, he was a bit moody and grumpy. I asked him what he was feeling, and he said, it's all the presents. They take you up, and then they drop you. <laughs> he really understood that he had been caught and that the presents couldn't deliver. Ah, well, he said, there is still one of the gifts that hasn't dropped me yet. He could still have a little bit of enjoyment before that one dropped him, too. And we talked about how they can never deliver real happiness, only short-term pleasure, and not nearly as much of that as promised. It took me until the age of 50 to begin to understand that. So it's this recognition of this energy. This is the important thing. The energy that, that pulls us, that, that we get caught up in, that pulls us towards things that we think are going to complete us in some way, that are going to bring that lasting happiness. But perhaps we wake up and we realize it's not going to happen that way. Can we come back and just be with our experience? When we're working with each of these hindrances, we're asked to come back and see if we can actually be here. In this case, be here with the way that the desire is manifesting. How do we feel that? How do we experience that? What happens in my hands, in my arms, in my belly, in my chest, in my throat, in my mind? What's this experience like? And do I feel more expanded? Does it make me feel happier, more free? Or do I feel more contracted? Do I feel more conflicted? Do I feel more constricted? So that more and more as we begin to recognize the experience, we could say, I don't want this. I'm not going to keep doing things that keep perpetuating this kind of experience. The Buddha had um, a metaphor where he said that it's as if we are holding a hot ember and we don't know that we're holding that ember. But as soon as you recognize that you're holding that, you don't have to go, oh, I'm holding this hot ember. Maybe I better let go of it. It's like you go, ah, oh, I'm not going to, it's burning. And we let go. So the more that we can actually feel the unsatisfactory nature of the holding on, of that kind of misunderstanding that something out there is going to make us happy, whatever it is, even if you think having a pleasant uh, meditation experience is what's going to make you happy, not even that is going to do it. Nothing can make you happy because you are already happiness itself. And all you have to do is recognize what is already here. And the way that we do that is by bringing the fullness of our attention back right into this moment's experience to see what's here already. 
you may wonder that it, by bringing our attention back to an experience of strong desire wouldn't feel very pleasant, and how could that bring us to happiness? But it seems that we actually have to go into the unpleasant experience. We have to actually go into some of the pain so that we're not rejecting, we're not resisting, we're not pushing away our immediate experience in order to go to the deeper layers of who we are. We can't go out and kind of patch ourselves up with pleasant things and good things and uh, great experiences, but we have to find that which is here now. And so the teachings keep encouraging, encourage us and point to being back here where we are now, even when our experience is unpleasant or painful. And I know you've heard the expression, the way in is through. We have to go through even the painful experience or the unpleasant experience sometimes to get to that pearl or that diamond or that precious nature that we are. We have to go through. Lao Tsao says, from the Tao Te Ching, he says, if you realize you have enough, you are truly rich. Be content with what you have. Rejoice in the way things are. When you realize there is nothing lacking, the whole world belongs to you. <coughs> when you realize there's nothing lacking, the whole world belongs to you. Right this moment, can you even sense that possibility that right in this moment there is nothing lacking? For some, it's a huge stretch to even imagine that might be possible, but it also may be possible just to intuit it for a moment. That right here, as we sit here together in this Dharma hall, listening to these Dharma teachings, and what a great precious gift that we have the opportunity to be here to do that, but that in a way, there's nothing lacking, not in this moment or any moment. I want to share with you this little uh, tiny article I found when I was in an airplane um, flying somewhere from a USA Today newspaper. This was May this year. I mean, it, you know, our, our, our society is just so caught up in greed and misplaced desire and looking for, you know, something, something to make us happy. And it, this, this was just probably one of the most extreme things that I've ever read. And I hope that there's enough light. Sometimes the eyes, my eyes, even with glasses, are. So the title is The FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration, Seeks to Keep Billboards from Space. So it says The FAA filed proposed regulation to ensure that it can enforce an existing law that prohibits obtrusive advertising in zero gravity. Objects placed in orbit, if large enough, could be seen by people around the world for long periods of time, the FAA complains. For instance, outsized billboards deployed by a space company into low Earth orbit could appear as large as the moon and be seen without teles a telescope, 
the FAA said. So they're trying to argue its case to keep these billboards out of space. But big and bright advertisements also might hinder astronomers, the FAA said. However, the FAA lacks the authority to enforce this existing law. <laughs> I mean, we're really getting out there, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> you know, we complain about the billboards, you know, just that even clutter up our highways. Now, I mean, this was for real. This isn't even a joke. <sighs> so, desire. We want to really get to know that movement of mind that wants, that wants to hold on to these things. The opposite, the energy of aversion or pushing away, not wanting. So, desire is the wanting, the aversion is the not wanting. That's the judging, condemning, the resistance, anger, hatred, ill will, all of our reactions that have a kind of, uh, we, re we react to the unpleasant quality of our experience. And I know that, you know, this is so uh, poignant for your experience here. You know, because coming into a retreat and, and having everything taken away, really, and you're just left with yourselves to sit and walk and sit and walk. And, you know, we even say, uh, don't read and, you know, don't go down to the bookstore and, you know, be here with this rhythm of the day. And, you know, what are we left with? At least 50% of our experience is unpleasant. And sometimes we really start to recognize what's called sitting pain, the pain that arises in the body just from sitting. We get up and it's gone. You know, whether it's the knee pain or the neck pain, the back pain, you know, it's like really hard to sit and be in this human body for long periods of time with any dis without any distraction from your experience. And so the, oftentimes we get very resistant and reactive. We don't want it. We don't want to feel the pain. We don't want to sit here and do nothing. We don't want to face our thoughts and our minds and our chaotic uh, past and our future. And it's like, I'll do anything to get away from it. And so we really need to begin to know the experience of aversion. What's that like? How does that feel? This is also a constricting experience where, where it's just like holding on when we want to hold on to experience. We have to constrict our muscles to grab onto that thing. In the same way, when we want to push away experience, we have to constrict our muscles, tighten to push away, to resist. I don't want. And so that too is a, a constricting experience that in itself feels unpleasant. And this is the movement of the wanting and the not wanting, wanting and the not wanting. And we can find ourselves swinging all through the day, wanting and not wanting, and being in this constricted state. Sometimes we can actually even be aware of the aversion to the aversion. When we recognize we're in some kind of aversive state, 
then we can get really reactive and resistant to ourselves that we're in that kind of a state. So we've just compounded it one time. And then when we see that, we can get really aversive and resistant to our aversion because we're aversive. And you, you can go really far out where you can get a, lots of layers of this aversion and resistance, and it can be very complex. And sometimes we just have to start with the most outer layer of aversion, just to see if we can just feel and sense into where is that aversion in our experience, to see if we can just kind of soften one layer of the aversion. We don't have to go all the way to the center and find out what we're even reacting to, because it may be too far down the line. If we can just just feel that outer layer of, of how we're tightening and constricting in maybe, for example, around pain, which is a, we often have a natural response to be aversive or want to resist pain. But then when we see it, we can then get aversive to ourselves because we're aversive towards pain, you know, this whole thing. So just to start at one outer layer, oh yeah, there's the aversion. Let me see if I can just relax that, just soften that resistance. And then go in one more layer, a little bit and a little bit and a little bit. The mind's very, very complex in that way. I'll just read this um, little story from Ajahn Sumedho. Again, you know, you can tell that we really love to tell stories about our, one of our uh, elder teachers, our elder, he's not so elder, but he's our elder in the lineage, Ajahn Sumedho the monk from, uh, uh, who's been the abbot of Amavati Monastery in England. And he tells wonderful stories. And uh, this is one of his stories about working with aversion. He's been a monk for about 35 years or so, and this is when the uh, story from the beginning of, one of, of his time as a monk in Thailand. He says, sometimes insight arises at the most unexpected times. This happened to me while living at Wapapong. The northeastern part of Thailand is not the most beautiful or desirable place in the world with its scrubby forests and flat plain. It also gets extremely hot during <coughs> the hot season. We'd have to go out in the heat of the mid-afternoon before each of the observance days and sweep the leaves off the paths. There were vast areas to sweep. We would spend the whole afternoon in the hot sun, sweating and sweeping the leaves into piles with crude brooms. This was one of our duties. I didn't like this. I'd think, I don't want to do this. I didn't come here to sweep the leaves off the ground. I came here to get enlightened. And instead, they have me sweeping leaves off the ground. Besides, it's hot, and I have fair skin. I might get skin cancer from being out here in the hot climate. I was standing out there one afternoon feeling really miserable thinking, what am I doing here? Why did I come here? Like James has been saying, we've been probably asking ourselves, what am I doing here? <laughs> Ajahn Sumedho says, why, why am I staying here? There I stood with my long crude broom and absolutely no energy, feeling sorry for myself and hating everything. Have you had that experience yet? Then Ajahn Chah came up, smiled at me and said, Ajahn Chah is the great master, great teacher of our lineage as well. Then Ajahn Shah came up, smiled at me and said, Wa Pa Pong is a lot of suffering, isn't it? And walked away. 
So I thought, why did he say that? <laughs> and then he thought, well, actually, you know, it's not all that bad. He got me to contemplate. Is sweeping the leaves really that unpleasant? No, it's not. It's a kind of neutral thing. You sweep the leaves, and it's neither here nor there. Is sweating all that terrible? Is it really a miserable, humiliating experience? Is it really as bad as I'm pretending it is? No, sweating is all right. It's a perfectly natural thing to be doing. And I don't have skin cancer. And people at Wapapong are very nice. The teacher is very kind and wise. The monks have treated me well. The lay people come and give me food to eat. And what am I complaining about? So his mind, the mind just turned around in that reflection. And he keeps going. He says, reflecting upon the actual experience of being there, I thought, I'm all right. There's nothing really wrong with anything except me. I'm making a problem out of it because I don't want to sweat. And I don't want to sweep the leaves. Then I had a very clear insight. I suddenly perceived something in me which was always complaining and criticizing and which, which was preventing me from ever giving myself to anything or offering myself to any situation. And then the, the last thing he says, that after he tells another story, he says, there was no problem after that. It felt really good. That nasty thing in me had stopped. So I think that's really such a good story because the situation didn't change. <laughs> he still was sweeping the leaves, and it was still hot, and he was still sweating, and he was in the same place. And the only thing that changed was his mind. The only thing that shifted was his perception that actually he was okay. And he really got a sense, he got in touch with the part of himself that was actually creating the suffering. And it wasn't the situation. And I think this is such a good reflection for all of us, particularly on retreat. And I certainly know for myself, being, I often get so caught in aversion and, and reaction and not liking. It was a very strong pattern for me, particularly in the beginning of my practice, till I really started to be able to identify it and say, oh yeah, there's that nasty thing, that, that pattern of my mind, which is really trying to create suffering. And then I didn't have to buy into it in the same way that I always did when I believed it, when I thought it was really telling me something about reality, about my reality. And so I think it's a useful reflection for us to when we get caught in situations that we don't like, we want something different to be happening, we wish it wasn't like this. Perhaps it gives us a way, a place to look Instead of what we usually do is we look out there for what we can change, how we could fix the situation, or how we can manipulate the situation in some way. And we may forget to look back at the source, the true source of where the suffering is arising, which is the way we're thinking about the situation, what we're bringing to the situation, or how we're relating to the situation that maybe the situation itself isn't so bad. And then there's the possibility of looking at 
the thing, the situation, completely differently. And that's what happens. There's the possibility for this whole other reflection. Because at any time, there's also all the beauty or all the goodness or all the loveliness that is here as well. And we can turn and look. Just turn the shift, the perception, just a little bit and see it one way rather than this way. Just a little shift of the perception, of the view, changes everything when we change our minds. I think when we begin to feel our experience more directly, and we come into the present moment and allow what is actually there to be there, that which we thought was so unpleasant or wrong or bad, that's that which we thought we needed to change or get out of, actually isn't as bad as we thought. I mean, it's not always true. Sometimes we do find ourselves in very difficult situations, and then some other things may need to happen. There's some other ways we may need to be with ourselves in that situation. But generally, I think for the most part, there's maybe a quick reactivity or a quick pattern of aversion or a quick pattern of grabbing on or fixing or manipulating or wanting to change. And as we come more into the direct experience and feel what's actually there, maybe it's not so bad. And I wonder if you've had this experience already when you just drop a little bit more into your experience and see what's true. I was talking with somebody in one of the interviews today who's really going through quite a difficult uh, chronic illness right now and really working and dealing with a lot of pain and it's uh, been going on for some months. And yet this person has a very deep Dharma practice and has a lot of understanding on how to be with his illness and with his pain. His whole life has changed because of this illness. And he said today, and I got his permission to, to, to say this, he said today, he said, and he was just kind of chuckling, and he said, you know, I don't understand it. I feel this most illogical happiness. I feel this, in, though even when he said illogical, he was somewhat surprised by his choice of words. Illogical. I feel this illogical happiness that just bubbling up. He said, it doesn't make sense. I shouldn't feel like this. And, I, and, I, and we just shared together in his good fortune, in his good fortune of meeting the Dharma and being able to drink the Dharma in such a deep way before the illness came, so that when this came, he could meet his experience with such uh, wisdom and compassion and understanding that is really allowing him to stay connected to a happiness that is not obscured, that is not hindered by any of the difficulties that are arising in his mind and body. And it's not that it's always like that, he reminded me. He said, it's not always like this. But the fact that he can even touch into this at times is very powerful, and it's a real inspiration, I think, for me and for many of us, that what's possible as we go deeper into the clear pool of our mind, of our true nature, 
that we don't have to be hindered by the difficulties of our mind. So the third one, sloth and torpor. Many of you know this experience. <laughs> so it's, it can be so unpleasant, too. You know, just wanting to be more wakeful, wanting to be more present, just feeling so sleepy. Sloth and torpor is really just the, the lack of energy. It's an imbalance of energy. It's a sleepiness, dullness, laziness. It can be a quality of boredom, of disconnection with our experience. And we, we really need to give this attention as well. It's not like when there's sleepiness we can't do our practice. But we can actually see if we can bring some degree of wakeful attention of mindfulness to the experience of sleepiness as well to see what can be understood there. And sleepiness really needs our attention because it's really a general habit for human beings to go to sleep. And I mean that in a spiritual way. I mean that in a way of cutting off of our experience. We go to sleep from our experience. Like we don't want to be here. We find somewhere else to go. It's very hard to be here. And so to investigate this, we may begin to have some insight into why do we do that? Why do we go to sleep? Why do we lose connection with the present moment? There are three things that could be happening. And we can ask ourselves as we investigate when the sleepiness arises, what of these three, these three things may be arising? The first one, and sometimes this is a huge insight for people when I say it, and it, and it always surprises me that it is, the first thing is you might actually be tired. <laughs> and it's amazing how many people go, oh yeah, <laughs> I'm really tired. <laughs> There's almost a way that, you know, we try to, you know, we think we've got to be awake, we've got to be present, we've got to be connected. But we forget that maybe, you know, for the last month or two months we've been pushing ourselves and, you know, one person who talked about this in a group said, oh yeah, I said, yeah, I have just been working on my finals, and I've just been spending two months to trying to get you know, through my finals and, and keeping three jobs at the same time, you know, maybe that's why I'm tired. <laughs> you know, or um, all different kinds of things that may bring about the tiredness. But so easily we begin to judge ourselves and make ourselves wrong and put ourselves down or you know, start to have doubt that we're not supposed to, you know, we're not good enough for this practice or we can't do this practice. You're just tired. And so sometimes we just have to listen to that and pay attention to that, take care of ourselves, take some time to just go a bit slower, take a little time to rest, to be, to be really um, respectful <coughs> of where we are and also give some reflection to the conditions in our lives that have actually brought that about. Because there may be some way that we need to change the conditions in our life so that we're not tired all the time. Very important piece. The second question that we may want to inquire into is that it might just be habit. We may just be, have a habit that we're, we've cultivated, a pattern of just kind of spacing out or getting 
dull or going to sleep or just whatever it is, spacing out. And we may want to really look at, have I created some kind of habit around this? And if I have, then ways we can work with that is we can start to try see if we can bring a little bit more energy. You know, in the meditation practice, we sit up straighter, we open the eyes, we can stand up, we uh, put our hands on top of our head, we can do faster walking, we can try to bring a little bit more vitality, start, start to change the habit, work with it a little bit, really catch it, if it's a habit. The third thing that might be going on is that we may have some kind of resistance to something that's happening in the moment something that we don't actually want to be with, or something we don't want to feel, something we don't want to know about. And so there, again, can be a habit, a habit of kind of cutting off when something gets difficult, when something starts to get activated, we just shut down. There can be a trigger or a mechanism where we just shut right off. And this is also part of the habitual pattern. So it can be useful in the meditation practice when we see that. We can actually ask the question when we space out or we fall asleep or we see it happening again and again and again. We can ask ourselves, is there something that I don't want to feel right now? Is there something that I don't want to experience right now? And then bring the attention down into the body, start to scan a little bit, and just see if something arises, something that might even just show its head just a little bit oh yeah, I'm feeling a little sad. <laughs> and then we start to have a memory about something. We want to allow that, let that come up, let it show itself. So we can do some investigation, some exploration around this too. It was very important to see what we can learn about sleepiness. And then the opposite energy, the restlessness, which is too much energy, you know, it can come about as just a lot of anxiety or restlessness running through the body. It can be agitation, worry in the mind, frustration, edginess, a sense of being uh, 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 irritable or unstable. Um, and it's usually compounded with aversion. We usually don't like it. There's some kind of complexity of aversion in there, too. The mind is very scattered and unfocused. The mind is moving into past and future, maybe trying to figure something out. We can, figure, we can spend hours and hours going over the same thing again and again. Um, the body can be very physically agitated or nervous or unsteady. Some people have that experience, too. And you can swing back and forth again, because if there's a lot of energy in the body, then of course we're going to come down from that and feel very tired and sleepy, and, and then we'll feel the opposite energy for a while, and then the body starts to gain a little energy, and then we'll come up and we'll swing way up and start to get really restless. And that's not unusual to swing between those two energies. So we need to also recognize the restlessness when it's there and be very careful not to judge ourselves for it. Because we can get into another judgmental, aversive state and blame ourselves, oh, I should be more calm, I should be more tranquil, I'm supposed to be doing this meditation, and feeling more calm. Just to see it as restlessness and as much as you can feel it. 
it's actually, restlessness is really one of the last fetters or the last hindrances to go in the highest stages of enlightenment. We say that because maybe that'll make you feel a little bit better. <laughs> All the way to very, very high stages of awakening, there's still restlessness. And one of my teachers, Hamid Ali, says that restlessness is a contraction in the nervous system. It is a specific feeling of suffering, a specific feeling of suffering. It is not just pain or anger or fear. It is an emotional suffering in the purest form. It is the suffering at the core of all human pain. So it's a core experience. When we, when we start to get quiet, when we start to settle, we'll feel that, we'll feel that core where there's still the agitation of being in a human body, being in a human mind. It may not be there all the time, but we'll touch into it. It's part of our human existence. It's, it's kind of an existential suffering of our humanity. And so yet we can so easily judge ourselves and think that it shouldn't be there, you know, that somehow we should just be able to drop into peace and calm and tranquility. But we're working with layers and layers and layers of our, <coughs> human, of our human conditioning. And yet we have such high expectations for ourselves in our practice, you know, that somehow we should just be there, you know, in these blissful white light states of consciousness. We need to be so incredibly gentle with ourselves. We need to be so respectful of the way that we manifest in any given moment, the way that these mind states arise and pass. They arise for a reason. You know, there's something that's being expressed, that's being revealed, that we can learn from, that we can understand. So the more that we can open and allow and embrace that which is moving through us, the more that we're, we're drawing on the qualities of our being that is already clear, that is already loving, that is already compassionate, that is already awake, that part of our being that can hold, that can embrace all of our experience. The mindfulness itself is an aspect of that clear nature, that clear consciousness. When we bring mindfulness to our experience, it is already an expression of that essential quality of who we are. We are drawing from the deepest resources of our being, of our consciousness, to meet our experience. And we, we embrace ourselves with that light of consciousness. <coughs> we, 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 touch ourselves in the most sacred and respectful way with our mindfulness. And it illuminates our situation so that we can have insight, we can have understanding, something can be revealed about who we are. And in that moment, then we can respond. In that moment, we can respond to what's needed. 
how we can care for ourselves, how, what wisdom can we bring to the moment. Because we do have clarity of mindfulness, we are present enough so that we're not caught in our reactivity. And even if we are caught in our reactivity, then there's mindfulness of the reactivity so that we can actually see ourselves caught in the reactivity and bring some clarity to that pattern of mind. It doesn't even matter if any of these hindrances are going on. The antidote is mindfulness, which is the light, the light of consciousness, to see clearly ourselves how we are, where we are in any given moment. From there, the wisdom can arise. And so the last one is doubt. And doubt is what comes when we get caught in believing the story of me. This is who I am. I'm small, I'm little, I'm deficient, I'm incapable, I can't do this. And who are those teachers anyhow? Who do they think they are that they can teach me? We can project the doubt out to the teachers, to the teachings. We doubt ourselves, we doubt the teachings. And the doubt can become very big and very broad. And the doubt is said to be the most dangerous or the most difficult hindrance of all because it can, can completely undermine and stop our practice if we believe it. If I believe that I'm not capable of doing this practice, if I believe the Dharma isn't going to support me and help me, if I believe the teachers aren't worthy, all that's going to just stop us. And James talked about this last night, that the antidote for doubt is faith. That somewhere we have to find that which brought us here in the first place, or that which has allowed us to step on the path in the first place. Something that can support us to keep going because the doubt can be so undermining, so heavy. And so we want to see the doubt, this I'm talking about self-doubt or skeptical doubt. We want to see this doubt for what it is which, is, which is just a story or a thought in the mind. Just a thought, to see doubt as doubt. It's a story that's manifesting in the mind, that's arising in the mind, and we don't have to follow it. We don't have to buy into it. The more that we can just name it and say, oh yeah, doubt, and perhaps feel the impact that it has when we start to go into the doubt or move into the doubt, be present, be mindful with our experience in the moment, this can cut through or interrupt that pattern of doubt so that we don't get pulled down by it, we don't get caught by it. When we get caught in the doubt, there's no ground or trust in our Buddha nature, in that which we are. And so again, through the connection with presence, connection with the quality of our essential nature through the mindfulness, we are uplifted, we are supported again and again. So when we can open to our experience, see it for what it is, they can appear, experience can appear like waves on the ocean, coming and going, coming and going. 
And as we experience what's occurring more like the waves on an ocean, on the ocean, then we may begin to sense that the waves and the ocean are not separate. That actually we are also the ocean. And then the waves and the ocean dissolve into each other. And we are here in our completeness, in our wholeness. And there's nowhere to go. There's nothing more that needs to occur. There's nothing else that needs to happen. Just waves coming and going on the great sea of our life. I'll end with this quote from Rumi. Dance when you're broken, open. Dance if you've torn the bandage off. Dance in the middle of the fighting. (coughs) Dance in your blood. Dance when you're perfectly free. So let's sit for a moment and See if you can feel the dancing. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.